My name is Ryan. If you're new, I'm part of the teaching team here. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I'm the DeForest campus pastor, so if, if you've never seen me before, that's why. Uh, but it's great uh, to be here uh, with you. Um, as you saw on the video, we've been covering in this series uh, struggles, things that we can all relate to, uh, issues around physical health, relational health, spiritual health. And today, we're going to be wrapping it up uh, by talking about emotional health, emotional health. So did you know that there are between six and eight uh, primary emotions? At least that's what psychology is telling us right now, primary emotions. So think about like your crayon box, you know, you've got your primary colors, you know, what are they? Yellow, red, and blue, I think. And you can basically mix and match them and create a whole spectrum, like a whole rainbow of, of vis visible color, and our emotions are like that. And chances are you have already today experienced uh, most, if not all, of the emotions, uh, the primary emotions. So uh, first of all, at some point, maybe, I don't know, you're at 10.30 service, so maybe you slept in, uh, but maybe you were woken up by an alarm clock and you looked out the window and you saw snow and you felt sadness, you know? <laughs> or this can be experienced as like, just disappointments or like, oh no, really? But then if you're like me and you make coffee, you take that first sip and there's this sense of joy, right? Like, ah, the world is okay after all. And joy can be experienced as a feeling of contentment or delight or euphoria. Uh, but then that is quickly replaced by fear when suddenly you go, how much time has passed? And it's already whatever o'clock and we have to go to church and no one's ready and oh my God, Gosh, it seems like all of the kids' shoes have just magically disappeared overnight, and you're like yelling, and suddenly you realize that you're angry, right? Which can be felt as like frustration, you know, or angst, and uh, annoyance, and irritability, and you finally get everyone in the vehicle, and there's kind of this low-grade tension, you know? It's okay. You're here now, you're okay, uh, on the way to church, and then you get to church, and you park, and it's like, you have to park really far because you're late again, you know, and you walk by these really happy greeters, and you feel shame, <laughs> <laughs> which, which can be expressed or felt as, uh, as remorse or humiliation, and so you sheepishly walk through, and then you finally find your seat, and you start to sing, and the words like kind of uh, go into your mind and you find them coming out your mouth and you find yourself feeling love, just love and adoration for this God who has invited you by his mercy and grace into a, a whole new way of being a human being. And you, you get this sense of like acceptance and, and trust and, and adoration and it's all going great until a couple rows in front of you, you see a kid picking his nose and wiping the boogers on the seat in front of you and you feel disgust. And you're like, mental note, do not let that kid touch me uh, for the rest of this service, right? So we feel kind of this spectrum, this rainbow of emotions all day, every day, and mostly we're unaware of of it and the power of our emotions. And there's a really awesome clip from the movie Inside Out that I wanna show you uh, to help us kind of get a glimpse at how emotions work. Here we go. So 
our emotions, in a very real sense, are in control of our minds. They're in control of the way we interact with the world, uh, with the way we interact with each other, and all of us have in some kind of emotional makeup, and everyone is very, very different. Like some of us can identify more maybe with anger or fear, uh, people maybe a little more high-strung. Some of us identify more with sadness or melancholy. We all have like these dominant emotions, and we all have a makeup that steers the way we are that's really, really powerful. And it's, that makeup is formed uh, by a lot of things that we had no control over, the way we grew up, the home environment that we were, we were raised in. Uh, and and uh, even more fundamentally, our physical bodies and our hormones and our, our mental and physical capacities and challenges. And, and there are reasons that you are the way you are. Don't look at your spouse right now. Right? Like, there are reasons that you and I are the way we are. And a lot of those reasons we have no control over. But for much of it, and especially as we grow older, we have a lot of control over. So our, our emotional makeup can be very healthy and lead to healthy interactions with people in the world. They can also be very unhealthy. And so uh, generally, psychologists will say that an emotionally healthy person understands that emotional health doesn't mean that I'm just happy all the time, right? That we still, like emotionally healthy people can still experience stress, anxiety, fear, and anger. But the difference is that they're aware of those things and they can cope with them. So self-awareness is a huge part of emotional health as well. More on that a little bit later. Emotionally healthy people, psychologists tell us, are able to cope with setbacks, right? So a trip to the dentist's office isn't, like it shouldn't be a debilitating thing. If it is, there might be some emotional health stuff uh, to look at. Generally, emotionally healthy people have good, warm, intimate relationships. Now, uh, Pete Scazzaro uh, has written a book called Emotional Healthy Spirituality, highly recommend it, and he gives us a kind of a list of descriptors for an emotionally healthy Christian. So here's what he says. Uh, first, he says that they're genuine. They are able to act the same way at church as when they're at home, right? So it's, it's not like I'm singing to Jesus on Sunday and then on Monday I'm swearing at my puppy, right? Because no one's watching. Like there's, there's a connection uh, there no matter who, who we're in front of. Emotionally healthy Christians seem to have the ability to grow from hurts and from trauma, and able to walk in forgiveness of those who have hurt us. Ouch, right? Emotionally healthy Christians are able to reflect, uh, like be self-reflective and open to feedback without getting defensive and blame-shifting and justifying or devastated by feedback. Uh, emotionally healthy Christians know how to rest. Yeah. And they know how to stop what they're doing and be present with whoever it is in front of them without some sort of digital device distraction. Uh, emotionally healthy Christians understand that they have limits. More, a little more on that later. And they're able to regularly engage uh, in rhythms of solitude with God and compassionate service of others. Emotionally healthy Christians are anchored on God and are able to remain hopeful in the midst of really dark circumstances. And there are some of us here right now 
who are dealing with like aftershocks of some sort of emotional earthquake, some sort of traumatic event that's happened in your recent past uh, and you're reeling right now and I think God wants to call you into a, a move of emotional health so you can find hope and realize that your story isn't over. In short, an emotionally healthy Christian is a person who is able to respond to other people no matter what the situation is the way Jesus would respond to them. Another way of saying it is an emotionally healthy Christian is a, is a person of love. We get uh, a really beautiful description of what uh, emotionally healthy love looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is a very famous passage. It says here, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not eagerly, uh, easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now pause. What if everyone who claimed to be a follower of Christ was actually like this? What if this was an accurate description of you and I no matter where we are, no matter what we are going through. Think about the power of that. First of all, it would, it would give us real peace in our own souls, right? Secondly, it would transform the dynamics of our families. It would turn our workplaces and the culture of our neighborhoods upside down. It would be a revolution of love. That's what it would be. And this, you guys, this is not some fantastical, mythical, pie-in-the-sky idea. This is actually what Jesus died to bring us into. This is the mission that God has given for us, to be a people of love. And the, the cultural revolution, the love revolution out there that God is calling us to as a church has to start with a revolution of the heart. So we have to look at our emotional health. You and I... You can be, you, we can be Christians, and we can be Christians for a very long time and still be uh, emotionally unhealthy. Uh, so Pete Scazzaro gives us a few things to look out for in his book. Uh, he talks about how emotionally unhealthy Christians tend to ignore anger, sadness, and fear, thinking that those negative emotions are emotions that are wrong to feel, or maybe at best nuisances that should be pushed down to maybe deal with later, but later never comes. Uh, emotionally unhealthy Christians tend to deny the impact of their past on their present. So like my dad is a great guy, man of God, a pastor, uh, just love my dad. But as, as a young child, I was watching him uh, be a, a young Christian and he had a real issue with anger, a real anger problem. Uh, his dad had an even more massive uh, struggle with anger, and he didn't have Jesus to help him, and so he would shove people around. My dad didn't shove people around, he shoved furniture around. <laughs> and so I always knew when my mom and dad were having a discussion, when I would hear like the dresser being dragged across the floor or whatever. And so it would be foolish for me to think that I get a pass on anger, wouldn't it? 
because the past tends to repeat itself. And in the same way, it would be foolish for you to think that your parents' divorce or affair is not going to have any effect on your marriage right now. Or someone in your family whose dependence on alcohol uh, won't have any, uh, uh, any impact on your habits and addictions. Emotionally unhealthy Christians tend to spiritualize away conflict. So this is really funny. I don't know if you've seen it. Maybe, maybe you do it. I don't know. Uh, so Sometimes Christians will even allude to or quote Bible verses to justify their own like really inadequate way of dealing with emotional uh, or like conflict in the home. And so like my wife uh, and her family, I love them. They're Norwegian, right? So their approach to emotionally healthy conflict in a Christian home was they would call themselves peacemakers. And what peacemaking meant was that they wouldn't just shut, like sweep issues under the rug. They would like pull up the floorboards, you know, and like <laughs> bury it in the foundation of the house and nail it back down, thinking that the toxicity of that conflict was just just gonna go away and never come back to haunt them. It does, it does eventually. Uh, my family is kind of a very different approach. Uh, my family, we would be the people who would never let the sun go down on our anger. You know, that's in the Bible, but I don't know if it quite applied to this. Uh, so it, it, like, no matter what was happening, no matter what time of night it was or whose birthday party we were at or if we were at church or not, it was like, we are gonna deal with this thing right now as soon as it comes up, uh, no matter the cost. And it kind of ended up being like a scorched earth approach to like uh, conflict resolution. It's super rare, you guys, to grow up in a family that does conflict well. But that's part of what God calls us to. Um, Emotionally unhealthy Christians tend to cover over their own brokenness and weakness and failure, like never really admitting that if I'm honest, I kind of have this low level feeling of being a failure, you know, or not measuring up. And so instead of addressing that, we, we tend to put up a veneer, how are you? I'm great, how are you, you know? And this one, this next one really hits home, at least for me and our family. Emotionally unhealthy Christians tend to think that they can live without limits. They can live without limits. So giving into the pressure that, that I need to do more and be more to justify my existence. And never stopping to consider that maybe my emotional energy has a ceiling my physical energy has a ceiling and that's by design and that's a good thing. Like we live in, in, I don't know if you realize this, we live in the most hurried human culture in all of human history, right? Hurry, I, I believe, is one of the great sins of our day. And just ask an immigrant moving in from maybe a, a developing country and they will be like, you guys are in a hurry all the time. And it's a great litmus test. We tend to live within inches of burnout, uh, kind of limping along with this low-grade depression, anxiety, anger, uh, constantly simmering just below the surface. And we, we medicate it and treat the symptoms, which is okay, but we keep putting off dealing with the root issue because it takes time, right? And it hurts to say no to good things so we can take time to be healed and whole. 
American uh, philosopher Dallas Willard calls hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And his advice to anyone who wants to become spiritually healthy is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I really agree with that. I remember the first day uh, that I discovered that I could be an emotion, like a, a spiritually mature person, Christian, but be emotionally immature. So we were in our mid-twenties. Uh, we had just gone through this uh, months-long season of having our first child in the NICU, uh, and we brought him home, and it was an amazing time, but it was also this time, as any uh, parent of a newborn child can attest to, it was like really, really trying. Because in most of other circumstances in life, you don't have a, a human being screaming at you every 30 minutes while you're trying to sleep, you know? And it pushes you to the limit. And we were being pushed to the limit. And so one night after, after a couple weeks of this, it was my turn to warm up the bottle, and I got up, and I, well, I don't know, I'm just going to say it, you guys, and don't, you can judge if you want, but just, if you've been a new parent, y'all feel, right? So, um, I was just angry. I wasn't angry at my kid. I was just kind of angry at life, like, God, what is this? And out of my mind, tired, I remember in the dark, I was stumbling around, put on a shirt, and it was backwards. And I don't know about you, but when I'm in, like, an emotionally good place, that bugs me, the tag, like, sticking into my esophagus, and I went to the kitchen and just was like, and just like the Hulk came out and I ripped my shirt off. <laughs> and I was like, what was that? You know, and I threw it in the trash and like, no one was there. I like put a potato chip bag over it so my <laughs> wife wouldn't see. I warmed up the bottle and I put another shirt on so no one would know. But of course, the next morning my wife comes in with these rags that used to be my shirt and was like, why did you do this? And I was like, I don't know, you know? I was, I was a working adult, a husband, a father, a, a, a Christian. I read the Bible. I loved God. But emotionally, I was like, a, there was like a, a teenager inside, just raging. And we can be adults chronologically. We can be Christians for a very long time, but, but in, very immature emotionally. And some of us really need to wake up to that. So what do we do? What do we do? Christian psychologist Dan Zink um, writes about these kind of lifestyle skills that we can begin to implement uh, into our, our lives. And he talks about self-discovery and self-control. And we see these in Scripture. So we're going to get into Bible uh, in just a minute. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 6. Uh, or turn it on and get to Luke chapter 6. Uh, self-discovery and self-control. So let's look at Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Here's what it says. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Notice the repetition of words and the symmetry of that. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So what is in our heart is what comes out. And so the first step to becoming an emotionally healthy person, an emotionally healthy Christian, is to be aware of what's in our hearts. Why do I react this way to certain people and certain situations? 
Who's driving this thing, you know? Uh, recent brain science uh, has shown us that at any given moment, you and I, our minds are taking in something like 40 billion bits of data. But we're only consciously aware of about 40 bits of data at any given moment. And the rest of that is being sorted out on consciously, and that's the work of our emotions. And most of the time, we're totally unaware of how inside we're reacting to what's happening around us. Uh, Dr. Neil Burton, who's not a believer, uh, not, a, not a Christian, but he writes in his book, today, the emotions are so neglected that most people are oblivious to the deep currents that move them, hold them back, and lead them astray. It might be a little cliche, but I think it's helpful, the image of the iceberg, right? So you've got the, the tip of the iceberg, which is the, that's the part that we can see. We can see our behavior, we can observe it, but below that, there's this, this mass of, uh, of what's happening inside of us that is mostly invisible to us. It's worth diving under the surface and asking, what makes me the way I am? It's the first step, self discovery. So we're going to look at the example of Jesus. And Jesus is uh, the perfect example to look at, and, and, and here's why. So most of us, when we observe Jesus in the pages of scripture, I think we tend to see him as kind of an emotionally flat person, maybe like a superhero Mr. Rogers, you know, generally uh, calm, always a little bit stoic, maybe a little bit detached, you know, the problem is if that's our model, it's really not very helpful because then Jesus is only as relatable to us as, say, Spock, you know? And then what happens is we get this wrong idea that being like Jesus, being Christ-like, is just kind of being like generally warm, nice, and polite, and we never quite mesh up. We never measure up to that, and it doesn't feel very real. But when we look closely, we will we will discover this profound, the profound nature of his incarnation. The incarnation is just this theological term that describes how Jesus is God made flesh. Fully human, sorry, fully human and fully God. Like totally both of those things. Not half of one, half of the other, but all of both. Fully God. He was eternal, he's powerful, he's uh, infinitely wise. John chapter one uh, tells us how Jesus spoke creation into existence. He was eternally pre-existent uh, as a part of the triune community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We read about that in Ephesians chapter one and John 17. But when he was born as a human child, he grew and developed just like us. He didn't walk two inches above the ground, you know, he didn't get a free pass on, say, puberty and hormones and mood swings and temptations. He was fully human with the real human body, real emotions, and a real inward life. The difference is that he intentionally uh, did not access the full power that was rightfully his as God so that he could experience life as one of us, walking in a lifetime in our shoes, and he never sinned. So, we're gonna look at this example in Jesus because what we see is not a superhero 
who can't relate to us, what we see is a real human being like you and me walking in trust of his father and being empowered as a spirit-filled human being. And he was participating in the revolution of the heart. And this means we can do what he did. We can do what he did. So here we go. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. Uh, Starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. So if you're familiar with this story, we're kind of being dropped in to Jesus' life, kind of toward the end, really hours before he was arrested and crucified on the cross. 700 years before this moment, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, said of the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, emotional words. And Jesus, in this moment, was fully aware, because he grew up reading Isaiah, he knew that he was about to enter the the hours and days of his life that was the reason that the Messiah would be man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And in that moment, this is so self-aware of him, he knew he needed a friend. He knew he needed a friend. And I don't know, if, if the Messiah, the creator of the universe, knows when he needs a friend because of his self-awareness, then we should never think that it is a sign of emotional strength to think that we can be independent Uh, or or do well alone. We need a friend. And that's why, you guys, we keep pushing groups. If you're not in a group yet, I'm just like, what are you doing, you know? And that's that's love, really. That's like love. So get in a group. Uh, Make the time for it. Verse 37. So he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, kind of his, his three amigos, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Are you paying attention to the humanity of Jesus? Sorrowful. Not a word that we use very often right now, but it's, it's this word that conjures up this, this idea that it's a, it's a welling up of the emotion that we feel when something has happened that should never, ever happen. Like a death. Or like something terrible happened to someone who really didn't deserve it. Sorrowful. He was sorrowful, but not just sorrowful. He was also troubled, which is this word that conjures up the idea of deep conflict, deep distress. Some of your translations might actually use the word distress or anxiety. Some scholars look at this and say Jesus was having a panic attack. Sorrowful and troubled. You put those words together, and this is not the emotion of a superhuman being who is just kind of having a little bit of self-pity or having like butterflies before a test. No, this is like a soldier who's about to jump on a grenade to save his friends. And he said to them in verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said it. He confessed it. You know, there's something really, really powerful about saying how you feel to to people that you love and trust, that love and trust you. I think most of us 
uh, far too often we just don't say it because it takes time to say it and it takes relationships to say it. But here, Jesus, in his self-awareness, is saying it and he's looking at his emotions in front of him. And then he says, please stay here and keep watch with me. Self-awareness. Moving to this place where we can say how we feel to people that we trust and that we can acknowledge it, you know? And, and that saying it doesn't devastate us, but we can see it in front of us. And sometimes that means uh, talking with a friend about it. Sometimes it means pouring out your heart to God. Some of us maybe journal all really good ways of becoming self-aware. And there's a, a litany of, you know, profile, uh, personality assessments and temperament things. The Enneagram is taking over the church right now. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. For better and for worse, you've got Myers-Briggs, you've got DISC profile. There's, there's a whole bunch of tools that we can use to become more self-aware, but it starts with saying it to a friend. But self-awareness is not the end all. Like in modern pop psychology, counseling uh, therapy, that might be kind of the end all. Like just say how you feel uh, and I'll accept you and you accept me and you do me and I'll, I'll do you and whatever. And you know, as long as we're totally authentic and self-aware and self-expressive and we don't hurt each other, everything's gonna be okay. But how is that working out for us? Not so great. That's, that's one dial. The other dial is self-control. Once we're aware of, of who we are, then we start to grow in self-control. Here's what Jesus did uh, as he continued on. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The cup was a way of talking about the suffering and death that he was about to experience. Yet, look what he said in the very next breath, not as I will, but as you will. And this wasn't Jesus like uh, against the father. It wasn't like the father was like, couldn't wait to just smash his son. This is not divine child abuse or anything. This is, Jesus is talking about how he's feeling right now in his flesh in that moment. And he's saying, not how I feel right now, but what, how you feel, how you and I have been planning from ages past to redeem humanity, that's what I'm gonna do. Because what Jesus understood is that sometimes what we want is not what we really want. Sometimes what we feel is not actually what is best for us. Self-control. Uh, there's a lot about self-control in the Proverbs. Let's, let's check out some of this. So this is Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. What do walls around a city do? They keep what's inside, inside, right, first of all, and they keep what's outside, outside, right? So you and I, like, I hope you're aware of this. There are sometimes thoughts that percolate and come up that really should never be said to anyone, right? That's what, what's keeping inside what needs to be kept inside. And there are also thoughts and things that are said about us that we cannot let in and take root and become truth in our, our lives. Self-control helps us to do that. There's also another proverb, chapter four, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And what this is telling us is that you and I have the ability 
to guard our hearts, but not just the ability, the responsibility to be the gatekeepers of our own hearts. What this means, you guys, is that you and I should never think of ourselves as victims of our own temperaments or emotional makeups or our, our past or history or the things done to us or said about us because you have been given the ability by God to be the gatekeeper of your own heart. And by the way, when you say yes to Jesus, you are automatically given the power of the Holy Spirit to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, so you're not alone in this battle. And growing in self-control and self-awareness never happens by accident. It takes time, like a lifetime. Like, don't think, I hope to have this figured out in the next six months or six years. Think, by that time I'm 82, you know? And Jesus shows us a pattern for, for how to actually do this because it doesn't happen by accident. So how do we do it? How do we, how do we turn these dials of self-awareness and self-control? Uh, we're gonna turn to Matthew chapter 14 and look at the example of Jesus. So just to set up what happens here, uh, Matthew chapter 14, starting around in verse six, King Herod, he's kind of the vassal king, the puppet king for the Roman Empire in Jerusalem, not a great guy. He's having a drunken birthday party for himself, of course, and there's a young woman who's dancing. Her name is Herodias, and it, we, we read in Matthew that it pleased him very much. Sounds sketchy. So he promised, he promised her, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. So this girl who danced went to her mother who apparently hated John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was Jesus' like, second cousin. Um, he was also the forerunner, the announcer of Jesus' messianic ministry. So their family and their ministry partners. And what the mother says is, tell the king that you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So this distressed the king, but because everyone was watching, he had John beheaded in prison. And verse 11 tells us that John's head was brought on a platter at the party, given to this young girl, who then carried it to her mother. Now, I'm not trying to be gross, I'm just reading the Bible. But in our desensitized, rated R world, I think this can just run off of us without impacting us. This is grotesque. This is vile. This is evil. John's disciples came and took his body, his headless body, and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus, your cousin and your ministry partner has been beheaded. Now, Think about how this would have hit Jesus. How close to home this would have hit him. Picturing his, his second cousin's severed, bloodied head and, and understanding, knowing that that is a foretaste of what awaited his own body on the cross. Okay, so now we're gonna jump into verse 13 where we see how he responded. And this is amazing. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew. He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. 
If you read the Gospels, Jesus often did this. And when he was there, he would pray to his father. Now, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot to, uh, from the town. So they, they went to where Jesus was. Now, uh, yeah, here's, here's how he responded. But just picture for a second, Jesus all alone on the boat with the, the water lapping against the sides, pouring his heart out to the Father talking about his distress, just like the Psalms do. And what he was doing is he was refilling the emotional reserves that, he, that had just been depleted by this devastating news. And now watch what the result is of this. When Jesus landed, so the boat on the shore, and saw a large crowd. Now, what do you and I do when we're stressed out and broken and we see a large crowd? We tend to disappear again. Right? But what did Jesus do? Look, he had compassion on them. This, this should blow our minds. And, and healed their sick. Now compassion is a word that describes an emotion. It's a subset of love and it feels pain. Not my own pain, but the pain of others. And the fact that Jesus, after this devastating moment, that after the, a time of solitude with his father, he had compassion. This shows us that something transformative happened uh, to him while he was alone with the father. And this is the practice that God calls us into. It's a rhythm of solitude and compassion, of solitude and presence. And guys, we are not ever going to have the emotional reserves to be people of love until we can learn to say no to other things so that we can have solitude with our Father. John Orberg in his book Soul Keeping says this, the soul seeks God with its whole being because it is desperate to be whole. The soul is God smitten and God crazy and God obsessed. My mind may be obsessed with idols. My will may be enslaved to habits. My body may be consumed with appetites, but my soul will never find rest until it finds rest in God. Solitude and compassion. That's the way. It's the, I believe, the only way we're gonna grow into people who can be self-aware and have self-control. So, I don't know where you are today. You know, you might be hearing this and, and realizing that you're in an aftershock time in your life. There's been some kind of traumatic event in your life, some kind of emotional earthquake that you're, you're reeling in. And maybe what you need is, is to find safety and peace and rest in God. Maybe you are feeling like you've been kind of in overdrive gear and you've been living a marginless life and the last thing you need right now is for a pastor to tell you to do one more thing, but you have to discover the power of solitude, which will mean making adjustments on your calendar and in your priorities. That might be you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is waking you up to some things that have been buried deep inside that you've been putting off and putting off and now he's just saying, it's time. It's time now. And all of it starts, no matter where you are, it starts with Jesus. Look at what uh, the writer of Hebrews said in uh, Hebrews chapter two. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, like us, fully human in every way. I didn't make that up, the Bible says it, 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. What does a high priest do? That he might make atonement, which is a word that means sacrifice, something dying on behalf of something that deserves to die that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He, and this is good news, is able to help those who are being tempted. Guys, Jesus has been where you are and in a very real way, wherever you are in your emotional journey, you are where he is right now. And he's on your side and he's empowering you And all you have to do is trust him and begin your journey. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have not abandoned us to be alone uh, in our emotions or in our physicality or our our spirituality or in our relationships. But God, you're there with us and you're, you're here with us right now. And Jesus, you died to break the gridlock that we're in so that we can... Uh, experience the revolution of love that you have had in mind for us since the beginning of time. So Lord, I pray for my friends here today that they would be able to say yes to you, to trust you, and to become people of love who change the world. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.